morning, everybody. Oh, it's so good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, just remember that. Uh, before we get back, remember, no refunds. Um, sorry, you voted. That's what you get. See, if you didn't have to vote, then you could be like, I voted. I voted for the Minks. Uh, but you did, so here we are. All right, so I'm going to jump right in. I am beyond excited to be here this morning. Like, I mean, it has been too long. Tri- yeah. So excited to be here. So excited to join you. And so honored. Because so I watched the live stream, as I think, you know, I've mentioned. And so two weeks ago, I watched. We've had 10 baptisms that morning. Right? And then another two this morning. That is incredible. Right? Yes. I don't know if you know this, but there are many, many churches out there who don't have 10 baptisms in a year, right? And you're doing 10 on a morning. Why? Because God is moving. Because the Holy Spirit is here. Because we are a people, we are a people who want to see Jesus glorified. And he says, that's what I'm looking for. I want to see people looking after me, looking for me, and then I'm going to move. That's why we're here. Because we want to see that and we want to be a part of that. So I am so excited and honored. Uh, my family is as well. I mean, my daughter's boyfriend flew all the way up from Beaumont just to visit us this morning. Like, we got people coming in from all over the place. So before we get started this morning, and we're going to jump into a sermon series. It's going to take us about six weeks to get through. It's called The Mission of God. Uh, and so we get the, the logo up there. And it, it ties into this beautiful picture that I want us to look at over the next couple weeks. But before we do that, I want to talk to you this morning about prayer. And so we've been praying, you've been praying, we've been praying. I know we have other churches that are praying with us. The church isn't Amarillo. You've got a church in Knoxville that's praying for you. Dallas, Georgia, uh, Middleborough, Maine, uh, Middleborough, Massachusetts. Like you've got churches all over that we're all praying together. And it would be easy to think that, okay, now we've been praying, it's time to do the work. But I think it's time to push harder and harder. I think that because we've been praying, it's time to push a little bit more and push deep into prayer. So that's why I'm going to start um, a fast. And so I'm, I'm going to start a fast, and there's a few things that I'm praying for. Uh, and I, I've talked to my, the, the rest of the pastors and uh, pretty much every point. Uh, and we're all going to continue to pray and push harder into this. And so I want to invite, and we want to invite all of you to join us, uh, not this week, next week, in fasting as well. See, fasting is a gift from God where we take some time, where we can willingly lay things down, Lay down desires, lay down physical needs, lay down food, uh, lay down other things, and say, Jesus, what's most important to me is you. What's most important to me is hearing from you. And if you're not familiar with fasting, I would use this as an example. If you have somebody that you love, and that person that you love is in the hospital, and you don't know what's wrong with them, the doctors can't seem to figure it out, but you look over every day and you see that one that you love who's laying in a hospital bed, and you just don't know what to do. There's nothing you can do to help them that you don't, don't know what's going on. What, what All of a sudden what happens is you're not concerned with food. Like you don't care. Food's not as important as this thing. You're not concerned with your house. You're not concerned with your job. You're not concerned with, with your car. Like all these, all these other things pale in comparison because you're, you're singularly focused on the one that you love. Fasting is a time where we intentionally decide to do that. Fasting is a time when we intentionally decide, Jesus, what is your most important? I want to see you, and I want to know what is in your heart. So I'm going to give you two extremes of fasting. On one side, you've got something like a Daniel fast. And so a Daniel fast, uh, and I'll read uh, Daniel 1.12, says, 
please test your servant for 10 days so there's nothing but vegetables and honey in the house. Like that's an extreme fast. 10 days or 7 days, whatever it might be, of vegetables and honey. It's a bit extreme, I'll be fair. <laughs> then you've got on the other side, if you can't fast from a person, because there are certain people who can't for whatever reason, medical issues, traveling, stubbornness, I don't know, hang, hangry, Lucy, um, it happens, right? On the other side, you've got things where you can give up like social media in two days. And you can say, I'm going to take these things that I desire, the things that I know pull a lot of my time, because let's be honest, if you have an iPhone, it tells you every week how much time you spend on that phone, right? You know how much time you're spending on your devices. And so you can take time to say, I'm not going to, every time I want to use those things, instead of, instead of picking up the phone, I'm going to pick up my Bible. I, instead, of, instead of turning on the TV, I'm going to fall to my knees. And you will find that you pray a lot on your phone. So, so there's two extremes there, right? And so that's okay. Whatever, whatever you can do. And if you can't or don't want to fast for whatever reason, that's okay. It's an invitation. That's all this is. This is an invitation to Jesus. And for three uh, specific items, here's what we're praying for. What is on God's heart for our church, our neighborhood, and our community? Like when, when God looks at church, what does he see? What, what's his burden for us and for our neighborhood? And we're all in different neighborhoods and, and in our city as a whole. What, what does God want us to do about that is number two. Like we, we can pray and say, God, this is what's on your heart. What do you want me to do about this? And number three, what does God want to do in your life? Like, like when you go home, what does God want to do in your life? How, what does he want to What does He want to walk you through or instruct you in or anything like that? What does God want to do in your family? So pray about that. Okay, so let's get into prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your invitation to draw near to you. I thank you that as we're singing and worshiping and, and calling out to you that we are saying, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. That your name, Jesus, is the only name that we want to glorify and give you. Help us, Lord, to lay down our own names, our own desires, and our own things that we want to build to instead build something that is of lasting value. Jesus, help us and help me to make that happen. Okay, so as I said, we're, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And I, I think it's really important to look at this because um, when we're talking about God, we, we want to know, like, who is he and what is he doing? Uh, if you were to ask me what the Bible is about, I would sum it up like this. The Bible teaches us what we need to know about God, what we need to know about others, and how to walk in a relationship with them. That's kind of the, the I would give you the summary statement of the Bible, that as you're reading through it, you're going to see those things over and over and over again. And so when we look and ask the question, who is God, we're also asking the question, what is he doing? Because we believe that God is a person, a real person. He has a personality, he has emotions, he has all these things that he's revealed to us in his word. And if he's a person, he has ideas. And if he has ideas, he has things he wants to do. So who is God and what is he doing? And I would say to, to understand the mission of God is also to learn the story of God. And to do that, I think we have to go way back to the beginning. And I would say that this is important stuff. This isn't merely like an academic exercise. I, I enjoy reading the Bible for academic purposes, just to, to like understand, like, okay, how does this fit into this theme and all that stuff I do. But to really understand the mission of God is not an academic thing. It helps us understand.
understand who God is and what he's about. And when we understand that, it also helps us spot and reject falsehood. So I'll give you an example. Some people, uh, way back in the day and still today, think that the flesh is evil. The flesh has no value whatsoever. Well, that's a falsehood. And when we study the mission of God, we see that. And it's important to know that because there are two, two extremes with that falsehood. On one side, you've got a group of people who will say, well, the flesh is evil. So, like, God just doesn't care about it. It doesn't matter. Physical pleasure is a horrible thing. Avoid all of that. Colossians chapter 2 actually talks about that. And then you have another extreme of people who are like, well, the flesh is evil. God doesn't care about it. Do whatever you want. That's hedonism. 1 Corinthians talks about that. But when we understand the mission of God, when we understand who he is, all of a sudden we go, God cares about me. He cares about my body. He cares about my, my physical needs. I'm not just a spiritual thing floating around waiting to someday drift off into heaven. This is that God cares about me. So, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to take a break right there. Okay, because <laughs> it just got real good real fast. Ten words. Ten words tell us everything. Ten words tell us so much about God, about us, about others. These ten words are some of the most amazing ten words I've ever heard in my life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's beautiful. There's a word in here, created. In the Hebrew, it's bahra. And it means created, but it's a special kind of created. It is the only time it's used for God. That is the only time this one word is used. And it's when God creates. It's a creative act that only he can do, which makes it a special one. We see it all throughout Genesis. We see it uh, in Psalms 51.10. It says, create in me, barach in me, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. We're asking God to do something that only he can do. You can, you can push through things. You can get over addiction. You can, you can get a good job. You can do all sorts of things, but you cannot create a clean heart within you. You cannot clean your conscience. That is something that only God can do. So when we ask God, again, this is important. This is why it's all awesome stuff. When we ask God, create in me a clean heart, we're saying, God, do something only you can do. And when he does that, things change. We see it used 15 times in the book of Isaiah, which I know doesn't sound a lot because it's like 66 chapters, but it is. And we see it used a lot in the prophets. The prophets are constantly reminding the people of Israel, remember this, Israel. Remember, God brought the world. He created everything. God is the one who created it. God is the one who created you. God is the one who formed you. God is the one who is over all things. When we understand that, it draws us back to that. It's easy in our world and in our lives to get distracted by the things going on. And I believe nowadays more than ever, we have more things to distract us and we can accomplish more by ourselves than we ever could before. But when we look back, then we go, no, God created God created me. And when we walk with Jesus and we see God created a clean heart, all of a sudden we start to see things in their proper perspective. So God creates heaven and earth, and everything's perfect. And it's harder for us, it's hard for us to think of perfection, because nothing on this earth is truly perfect. Like I joke around and say my wife is like Mary Poppins. Practically perfect. 
perfect in every way. Practically, for all intents and purposes, it's perfect. But there's nothing on this earth that's perfect. There are things that are close. There are things that are, that are really good. There are things that it's like, oh, this is an almost perfect day. We'll say it's a perfect day. But it's, it's not because it actually ended. The, the day moved on. Nothing is actually perfect. But in the beginning, when God created everything, it was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. God creates something, and every time he creates something, he says, it is good. God, God says, let there be light. And he says, it is good. Everything God creates, he says, it is good. Everything God does is good. And I would argue that still today, everything God does is good. Because he is good. He is good. Right? It's good. So, so God creates everything and he says it's good and he makes perfection. Now remember, what we're doing right now is we're walking through the story. God creates everything. He says it's good and he creates perfection. And then God creates man. He puts him in the garden. He takes him and he places him in the garden. He puts Adam to work. And a few things that we'll notice right away is that first God creates Adam on the sixth day. After all the other work is done, after everything is complete, God creates man and puts him in the garden. There is no work for Adam to do. No contribution that Adam can make whatsoever. Nothing he brings to the table. God has done everything. And the seventh day being a day of rest, God says, now I'm going to create you. And your first day as a real boy, Adam, is going to be a day of rest for you. Rest is a gift from God. It's hard for us to remember that. It's hard for us sometimes to think about that. But rest is good. Rest is a gift. Sabbath rest is holy. Him, it says, I am resting in Jesus, hallelujah. I know that the blood of the atonement makes me whiter than snow. I will trust in my Savior and abide his control, for he loved me so dearly that he ransomed my soul. Oh, my rest is so sweet as I sit at thy feet. I am resting, dear Jesus, and I say to thee. Have you ever had those moments of rest? Like true rest, where all of a sudden you're just like, everything's good. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not trying to control anything. Rest is beautiful, and rest is a gift from God. Then God gives Adam work to do. Because as rest is a gift, work is a gift from God. So God gives Adam work to do, and it might be on the eighth day, it might be sometime after, but but God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and tells him to work it. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and watch over it. Work is not sin. Work is a gift, just like rest. Adam was to work and to watch, to to do and protect, to labor and to preserve. Adam had a job to do, and God gave Adam the rules. He said, you can do whatever you want. I want you to name the creatures that are all over the earth, which implies dominion, right? God is telling Adam, you have control over this. I want you to work the land. I want you to, 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 to... you know, what, I'm not a gardener. You do garden things. Right? And tell, tells him to watch the garden, to protect it, to watch over things. And Adam does things very well. And then God creates woman. Not a joke. <laughs> Just 
couldn't find a smooth transition. He made them, right? God, cre- God creates Adam. He puts him in the garden, tells him to work, and Adam's doing his job. Adam's naming the creatures. He's working the land. He's protecting. He's watching out. But he realized that God, Adam realizes he doesn't have any companion that's like him. So God creates a woman and puts him in the garden with Adam and says, work the garden with your husband. I give you paradise. You guys can do whatever you want. And remember, remember, God gave Adam the rules as well. You can do whatever you want. You can eat anything, any of these trees and plants that you want. But just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do whatever else you want. So Adam creates, uh, sorry, God creates uh, Eve and puts her in the garden. And God creates a new thing in that too, marriage. He creates them male and female, and then he creates marriage. A blessed and holy partnership for them to work together. And then a serpent comes along, doesn't he? And tricks Eve into disobeying God. But here's the thing. Adam did not deal with God. Adam, remember, was to work and to watch and to do and protect, to labor and preserve. He was supposed to protect the garden from such things. Genesis 3, 6 says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. Adam was right there. He did not do his job. God gave Adam, or yeah, God gave Adam the rules, and Adam did not do his job. He was supposed to kick that snake out of the garden. Now, all of a sudden, perfection is gone. Everything that was beautiful and perfect now falls into entropy, and we start slipping slowly into disorder and chaos. Things start to fall apart. Everything seems lost and hopeless but God. If there are two words that should always give us hope in this life, it is those two words, but God. Because God was not about to let this fall apart. He was not surprised by Adam and Eve doing what they did. The moment God said, let there be light, he also knew at that moment he was creating a world that would bring sin and death into it. But he chose to do it anyway. Even for us. God comes to the man and and the woman and says, you know, he comes to them in their time and he, he comes to rescue them because he is invested in his creation. But there are consequences. See, we think of sin as a list of things to not do. But the problem is that sin is not really a list. Sin is not a bucket of no's. Sin is not uh, merely an external but an internal problem. In the Old Testament, there's about 613 different rules. Some are do-nots and some are do's. And to do the do-nots and not the do's, then that's sin. But in the end, they all come back to a heart Is your heart turned towards God, or is your heart turned away from God? We sin because we want our own way. We sin because we like it. Like if it wasn't pleasurable, you wouldn't do it. That's why we sin. We sin because Adam and Eve had consequences to their sin, and their sin gave us a sin nature, an inherent proclivity to want to fill our own selves with what we desire and with what we want. We all have a sin nature, and if you don't believe me, spend the afternoon with one of those folks. Right? Selfish little creatures who will try your patience. 
that's who we are. That is our nature. But, but the Bible, and the Bible doesn't shy away from the realities of what it means to be a human being. The Bible doesn't paint over this with some shiny, happy paint and says, yes, you have sin, but it's okay because you're just human. No, it says, this is what you do. This is your abomination. These are the things that you commit, that you enjoy, that you choose to do, and that you, you turn away from God and you go your own way. But here's the thing. This is what teaches us about the mission of God. Because right away we see the mission of God. We see that God is the one on the move to seek and save that which is lost. Because Adam and Eve have sinned. Adam and Eve have, have done some things, and, and, and they, they're thinking to themselves, right? So God, God, the, the, God, Adam hears God walking in the garden. Adam's like, we need some fig leaves. Because they're trying to cover up what's going on. So they run and they hide. But right away we see uh, Genesis 3.8. Uh, it says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God knows where he is. When we sin, we run and hide. When we sin, when we fall, we want to we hide and we want to go cover ourselves up and we want to make some things to protect us. But the whole time, God is saying, where are you going? Why are you running from me? Years ago, I was struggling with some things and I just, I'd like, I'd struggle and then I'd be like, oh, I can't pray right now. I can't worship right now. Like, I've sinned, God. I've, 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 I've sinned against you. And I really felt clearly in that moment, after a long time of dealing with these things, felt like God was saying, that's exactly when you need to come. That moment when you feel like you're dirty and I've abandoned you and I don't want you because of the mistakes that you've made, that's when you should worship. That's when you should pray. That's when you should say, you know what? This is where I need to go. Instead of being like Adam and Eve and going hiding in a bush somewhere and saying, God, I was scared because I heard you in my nakedness. Because God says, don't, don't run because I'm going to find you. I'm looking for you. And we see hope. Genesis 3.15 gives us the first glimpse of the gospel. It's known as the, the proto-evangelism. And it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And here God is talking to the serpent that, that tricked Eve. And between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God gives the promise that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. The devil, the adversary. Hope is promised. And if the hope is promised from God, hope is protected. We can trust it. And for thousands of years, when Jewish women would be getting ready to give birth, there would be this thought in their mind. Is this the moment? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's been promised all along? We see love. As we look at the mission of God, as we look at the story of God, we see love. Because God is on mission, and he has a mission because he loves. First, we see that God covers us, up, covers us up properly. He removes the fake fix Adam and Eve made and, and does it right. Now, I think we all have fake fixes in here. In, in our sin, in our shame, in our, in our own striving, we have ways that we try to accomplish it. And then what happens is we get into a relationship with God, and God starts to, at first, it's just, it's just easy, right? Like new Christians are some of the favorite people on the planet because they're going to tell everybody about Jesus and they, it's like God answers every prayer they ask for. They're like, Jesus, I need a Lamborghini. And he's like, here you go. Right? And then something happens in your walk and all of a sudden you start praying and you're like, God, I really, I need you to come through. And, and he doesn't do what you were expecting. And you're like, but gee, are you not hearing me anymore? 
And so in the beginning, we start to think, oh, like maybe I didn't, maybe I did something, right? Because we always go back to, I messed this up. And so then we, we start to think, well, maybe I've done something wrong and God's not listening to me anymore. So we start getting super religious. And we go from like super on fire to super religious. And he lets us go through that phase. And then we get to a point where all of a sudden we're just in the actual relationship with him. And where if he answers a prayer and a desire that we have, awesome. And if not, awesome. And then what happens is God starts to actually fix the fake things. Those things that we've dressed up over ourselves, those fig leaves that we've made, he starts to go, okay, we're going to get rid of those. And it's going to be fine. This is, this is going to be fine. But it's okay. Because I'm the one that made it. That's love. That's, that's devotion to his creation. Because God is so good that in our brokenness and our shame, he comes and gives us what we actually need. Like, uh, I won't say who, because I happen to be related to her, because she lives right here. But uh, my daughter, when she <laughs> was little, no, no, it's okay, it's not a bad thing. She, like, she hated having a Band-Aid taken off. Right? Like, you got kids? Like, I don't know. Some kids are like, oh, no, pull the Band-Aid off. The hair comes off with it. And they're like, ah! Not, not this one. And not some of yours. Right? No. So, like, she didn't want to take the Band-Aid off. It had to be a slow process. In the shower, over the course of a week. We're just going to let it fall off naturally. Every once in a while, as a good dad I am, I would rip it right off. And then she wouldn't talk to me for a while. But that's Okay. God does that for us. Sometimes it's that slow process where he fixes it. And he's like, we're just going to let, we're going we're just going to fix this one, but I understand that this one's a little touchy. And other times he's like, we just, we're going to rip this one off. It's going to hurt, but I'm fixing it for you because I love you. Because there's something else that I want for you, something else that I have for you, that we've got to get through this one. And the longer you make it take, the longer it's going to take for you to get where we're actually going. And he fixes it. Second, he removes them from the garden, right? God removes them from the garden so that they do not eat from the tree of life and live in their sin forever. Their removal from the garden of Eden was for their benefit. It was for their good. Like the first time, the first couple times I really read that story, I saw that as a punishment. Like I saw, oh, they sinned and God kicked them out of the garden and put the angel with the flaming sword there and says, don't come back. No, that's not what happens. Genesis um, 3.22 says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand or take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam and Eve were in sin. They had brokenness. God did not want them to live forever. Their removal from the garden was a gift. God says, I love you. Now go. God's no was for their good. God's go was for their blessing. God was for them in their greatest time of failure, and God is for us in our greatest time of failure. Sometimes God says, you need to go because he loves you. And because of where you're at is not going to help you grow. It's not going to help you see him clearly. It's going to leave you in a place that you do not belong. God is the one who is seeking and searching and looking. It is his mission. And when we talk about going on a mission, what we're saying or what we should be saying is partnering with God in his mission. So as we're 
fasting, as we're going through this series to look at the mission of God, we're looking at the story of God unfolding, we're looking at the mission of God, what we're asking is, Jesus, what are you doing? And how do I partner with what you're doing? Because when I look at this, when I look at just these first three chapters in the Bible, I see a God who loves. I see a God who cares. I see a God who is intimately connected and desires to be with his creation. How could I not want to love him? How could I not trust him with everything that I have? How could you not trust him with everything that you have? Every day, God is moving and working and going on mission. And what we're, what we're saying is, I want to partner with you with what you're doing. Because if I were to do it, it'd be a mess. But if you're doing it, God, it's going to be perfect. Sorry, just like I try to think sometimes. We're gonna have the worship team come up, and we're gonna we're gonna close out, and we're gonna have a time of response. And a time of response is this: it's a time. Um, I love a time of response because it's a time for us to think about God. Who are you, and what are you doing? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Because at the end of all of it, what we're always asking is, God, what do you want me to do? With this, what do you want me to do with Christ inside me, the hope of glory? What do you want me to do with what the Holy Spirit speaks to me? So time of response is a time where we can worship. The prayer team's going to come up. If you need prayer, you can come up and receive prayer. It's a great time for, for offering because worship is a time, or, uh, offering is a type of worship where we say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with everything I have. But it's also a time to like just sit and think. Like, Jesus... Is there something you want to say to me? We're going to have a time of response. But here's what I want to say in closing. Is that if God's heart is to reconcile and restore, then how could we not want it? So I'm going to pray, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a time of response. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are here with us now. Again, Lord, that if, as we sang and as we look at your word, as we see the truth of who you are and what you're doing, what you've done, we see that you are good. We see that you have been moving and are continuing to move. Lord Jesus, we love you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that if there is somebody in this room who doesn't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them. We can share things about you. We can talk about you. We can point to you. But only you can reveal yourself to us. Help us follow after you. Help us seek you.